Welcome to the prism. This is the place where modern worldviews, events and ideas come under biblical scrutiny. So welcome to this special episode of the podcast. It was recorded live at Temple Patrick Reformed Church on Friday, the 18th of March, 2022. So you might find a few ums and ahs throughout it. But for a while I've been intrigued and perhaps alarmed by the pace of change in our modern world. And I'm sure others are too. I'm sure you're finding it hard sometimes to keep up with some of the strange things that are happening. Things that were never heard of just a decade or so ago. I've been wondering whether there might be a dominant philosophy driving these agendas for change. And after some simple research, I came across something called Malthusianism. We might simplify it and call it population alarmism. It's that philosophy that I'm looking at in this address. And I'm also looking at a biblical response. So if you're going to listen, sit back, make yourself comfortable, grab a cup of coffee, wear nice comfortable slippers, for this talk lasts about an hour. I've called it What's Beneath the Surface. And I think you might just find it interesting. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. As Amos says, when God speaks... Who can but prophesy? And God has spoken to us in his word. And I think we ought to be speaking out more than we are. Let's set the scene. Do you ever find yourself listening to the news or reading the paper and just asking yourself the question, what on earth is going on in the world? There's so many strange things happening. I suppose the simple answer that would be that we are living in the last days. Well, of course we are. Um, but then your idea of the last days and mine might be slightly different. Because I believe the last days is from the day of Pentecost until now. So um, I have that opinion. But yet in the past while back, we have seen so many strange things happening. There is, it seems, a concerted global coordination going on. A coordination of the ongoing attacks on what we might describe as life and liberty and freedom of speech and personal and bodily autonomy. Now, let me look back over the last couple of years for a moment. Look at how events seem to have been synchronised. Isn't it strange? The COVID pandemic, a novel coronavirus, a novel coronavirus leaked from a Chinese lab, accidentally or deliberately, who knows, leading to a simultaneous response right across the globe. Lockdowns, things never heard of before. The stripping away of essential freedoms, hard won over many centuries. You have to meet outdoors, social distancing, 
wearing masks, self-isolation, restrictive measures, all the things I never did. People denied access to loved ones, even when they were sick, even when they were dying all over the world at the same time, as if someone or something was coordinating it all. And what about the control of the media? Well, we talked a little bit about that last month. The deplatforming of scientists, even eminent academic experts in the field of epidemiology, public health policy, vaccines, anyone who disagreed with the orthodox narrative, silenced and discredited, labelled as a COVID denier all over the world at the same time as if someone or something was coordinating it all. And the worldwide rubbishing of existing prophylactic medications, things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, the early insistence, right from almost the announcing of the pandemic, the early insistence that only vaccines would be effective, freeing us from this plague all over the world at the same time as if someone or something was coordinating it all and the crushing of dissent in New Zealand, in Australia, in Europe, most noticeably in Canada, where the Prime Minister, who had liberal credentials, jailed a pastor, He refused to close his church when ordered to do so and has kept that pastor in solitary confinement and has removed peaceful protesters from Ottawa by sheer brute force, has frozen bank accounts of anyone who offered financial support to protesters, closed down businesses who served them, even who served them with a cup of coffee, charged his own people using police and horseback, police, incidentally, that had no identification numbers or names. And this is happening all over the world at exactly the same time as if someone or something is coordinating it all. And the introduction of vaccine passports and the vilification of people who declined the untested medical procedure, labelling them as unclean, or refuseniks, a term from uh, the Soviet Union, the unvaccinated, mandatory vaccination for travel, for employment, for leisure facilities, and it's happening all over the world at the same time as if someone or something is coordinating it all. And then... In a moment, we might even say, in the twinkling of an eye, it's all over. It's gone. And the media focus switched, almost like by magic, to something entirely different. A new plague. It's like as if the white horse of pestilence has passed over us 
and the red horse of war has taken his place. And the narrative has changed and all the media began to focus on the government message about Putin and Russia and Ukraine and NATO. And all of a sudden, the people who were clapping on their doorsteps are waving Ukrainian flags and expressing a desire to go to Ukraine to fight the Russians, (laughs) encouraged, by the way, by the foolish woman who is supposed to be our foreign secretary. And not just our government. Have you noticed? It's all over the world. All the same people at the same time. As if someone or something was coordinating it all. I'm beginning to think it can't be too long before the black horse of famine rides out to inflict us. Maybe more of that later if we get time. And let's look at the moral state of the globe. Society is changing rapidly. Just a few decades in the United Kingdom, we have gone from being a conservative, I say God-fearing society in the sense that people, whilst they may not have been Christians in the sense that we would understand it, at least had some moral understanding of the law of God. Don't you remember? At least I remember being brought up in the 60s, being sent to Sunday school every week, twice. My parents, maybe not going to church themselves, but they certainly sent me, my brothers and sisters and brother and sister. And we've gone from that kind of a conservative society to a completely pagan nation. And think of the changes. Homosexuality, once considered to be a shameful and dangerous practice, illegal, punishable in the courts, is now legal and acceptable in society, and more so. We went for a walk with our grandchildren in Port Stewart just last summer. Walked up round the steps, past the convent, you know, and up the coast and up into the car park and down back round past the anchor complex. And as we were going past that complex, walking down towards the town hall, two men, probably in their twenties, walked past us holding hands. And no one seemed to be batting an eyelid. Legal and acceptable. That's bad enough, but it's openly promoted in primary schools and secondary schools. Not just tolerated in society, celebrated in society with pride marches and normalized by legalized homosexual so-called marriage ceremonies and an overly public of the public critique of the LGBT, whatever comes next, agenda, is likely to result in a court appearance. The legalized murder of unborn children, once a shady backstreet profession, is now carried out openly by our NHS. And it's described as health care. Did you see this week, notice on social media, there was a lady swimming gala in America, 
and it was won by a man. The winner of the women's swimming gala was the person, I think, who came second. Men having babies. I put the word men in scare quotes there. Five-year-olds who are not allowed to decide what time they go to bed at night are being allowed to decide to dress as the opposite sex and to opt for hormone replacement therapy, which will stop their puberty, and in their teenage years, opt for surgical mutilation of their body parts and their reproductive organs that can never, ever be undone. And it's not just moral changes either, sure it's not. It's cost of living changes, home heating oil, is scandalous. My wife said to me yesterday, good news, the heating oil has dropped back 20%. It's bad news. It's risen 100% before it dropped back 20 Of course, we could say the events in Ukraine have contributed greatly to that, but long before that happened, prices were already rising. Inflation rampant all over the world at the same time as if someone or something was coordinating it all. I'm in danger of repeating myself here. I'm trying to make a point. You know what I'm getting at, don't you? When I ask what on earth is going on. Well, of course, as you know, there are multiple organizations pushing all those agendas. What I want to get at this evening is a single idea or worldview, a philosophy, that underlies a lot of what's happening in the world today. And I believe there is such a philosophy. And to uncover that worldview, that philosophy, we have to go back actually to the 18th century. And we have to meet a man called the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, a failed vicar in the Church of Ireland. And a later teacher of economics whose Ideas on world population, discredited by many at that time and even later, is the philosophy that is influencing the direction of our present world. Let's start with the easy stuff. Who was Thomas Robert Malthus? Well, he was born in 1766 in England, born near Dorking in Surrey, a clever fellow. And he went to study at Cambridge, studied at Jesus College, Cambridge, and was ordained to the Anglican ministry in 1797. He didn't remain a minister in the church for very long. Malthus had a great interest in economics. He was fascinated by the study of finance and population and how governments and businesses generated and spent their money. So he began to collect data, banks and banks of it in modern terms. Births, marriages, deaths. He spent hours trying to figure out how wealth and poverty would affect people's inclination to marry and to have children. It was a topic of conversation at the time, very, very topical. Parliament at that time was debating what was called the poor laws, measures that would establish 
workhouses for the poor. Places where people who were genuinely impoverished could find shelter and basic food, very basic shelter and very basic food, in return for some labour. Malthus openly opposed such measures. He didn't want to have workhouses. He opposed any form of dole for the poor. So if you're living at the minute on the dole, Malthus wouldn't have liked that. He believed that if people were without food, that that was their own fault. That they should actually have produced less children, or they should just simply, to quote a later Tory minister, get on their bike and travel further afield and find work. And he thought that providing dole or providing a workhouse would actually hinder the mobility of labour. If you were giving people something for nothing, they would simply stay and take it and keep breeding children and causing a greater drain on resources. In 1805, Malthus took up a post as Professor of History and Political Economics at Haleyborough, a university established by the British East India Company. And he published a book while he was there. His work was Essays on the Principle of Population. And that book's main thesis was that human population would always exceed the supply of food that the world could produce. So what did Malthus believe about the human population of the world? Well, he thought and taught that there was no possibility of human happiness enduring upon this earth. There was no possibility of human happiness and contentedness and well-being being available to every single person in this world for the population is always expanding and the supply of food, according to Malthus, worldwide was always going to be static and therefore limited. So if the population is growing and the supply of food is static, then sooner or later we're going to run out of food. Malthus wondered what measures would slow population growth. He reasoned that human population could only be controlled by three factors. He talked about human vice. And there he was thinking about the bad things people do, like wars or human misery. And he was thinking there about illness or pandemics. That would control the population, wouldn't it? Or maybe famine. We could starve them to death. And of course, being a man of his day and a former minister of some sort, he believed in moral restraint. He was a churchman. He believed that temperance should be taught to children in the schools and in the home, that people should learn to restrain themselves. That basically sex before marriage is always wrong. We would agree with that. And that even after marriage, it should only be restricted to when it was absolutely necessary in order to procreate. So a man and a woman should learn the basics of life. That sexual relationships result in babies, and too many babies are too hard to feed, if not impossible. Now, modern 
economists regard Malthus as a pessimist. For all that Malthus saw was death and doom and destruction in the world if we do not learn to control ourselves and so control the population. If we don't do that, said Malthus, we will eventually starve ourselves to death and extinction. Now, this is where Malthus dabbled a bit in behavioural science. We looked a bit at that last month. Malthus believed that faced with the prospect of an overpopulated world, certain death ahead, humans would change their behaviour. He thought if we can warn them that there's going to be a lack of food, if we can get it through to their heads what they're doing to this overpopulated world, then they will stop having babies. Instead of, as he saw it, rewarding their bad behavior by giving them dole and freebies. Instead, we have to manipulate them psychologically, if you like, into behaving themselves more responsibly. In fact, he concluded the very fact that mankind has survived at all is because economic choices are at work. They must be at work, he thought. It is the job of an economist, he thought, to study these incentives and choices and nudges and changes of behaviour so that the population can be limited and sustained and maintained at what he would have called a sustainable level. Have you heard the word sustainable? Right, so what about today? What about modern Malthusianism, population control? See, Malthus, I suppose, has been misunderstood to some extent. He saw population control as a natural result of factors outside the control of the individual. He saw it as the lack of resources, as illness, as war. In modern times, his ideas have been adopted by various lobbies. People who think that population should be controlled by artificial means, by force, by force of legislation, by coercion, by psychological nudging. Let's think of some examples. Let's think of communist China. Legislative and enforced control. In China, the Communist Party introduced what they called a one-child policy between 1980 and 2015. It was to curb the country's um, growth of population by restricting families, most families, to a single child. China had been concerned about excessive population growth in the 70s. The government raised the age of marriage, demanded less children be born, encouraged it by pervasive campaigns of propaganda, by severe penalties, by the forced use of contraception, by forced abortions, by forced sterilization of women. Families who violated the policy faced huge fines, social demonization in their communities, and the policy still didn't work. In a deeply patriarchal society, 
families wanted boys. And the result was that baby girls were frequently unwanted and often unloved. To have a baby girl was a disappointment. Sometimes they were even abandoned to die. Sometimes they were given for adoption overseas. The Chinese population began to drop. Dropped dramatically. At one point, the drop in the upcoming labour force to keep the nation's industries running became alarming. The one-child policy was amended in the mid-1980s when rural couples were permitted a second child, but only if the first one was a girl. In 2015, the one-child limits were increased across the population to two children, and in 2021, all limits last year were eventually removed. An example of uh, legislative enforced control. Let's look at an example or two of psychological nudging. This is interesting. Look at some examples. Why do you think gay marriage has been introduced in this country? In the UK, it was introduced by a conservative prime minister. The man, the globalist, who thought he was the heir to Blair, David Cameron. There was no mention of it in his manifesto, in his election manifesto. Yet it was relentlessly pushed through. Um, back to have to say to the hilt by Boris Johnson. Every Western country is now pro-homosexual, so-called marriage, and they will attempt to coerce third-world countries to follow suit through sanctions and aid programs and so on. Now, why is that? Simple. The theory goes that everyone needs someone to love. We crave lifelong companionship and commitment, and traditionally we find that in Christian marriage. One man, one woman, and a family of children. But what if we could get someone, people to love someone that they couldn't have children with? Hmm? Like two men. Or two women. And what if we could encourage them to be faithful to each other? You see, here's the point. You can, you can agree, disagree with this if you want. I don't, I don't mind. Up until that point, homosexuality was regarded, male homosexuality anyway, throughout the 20th century was regarded as promiscuous. It still is actually. But you know, it's regarded as promiscuous. People knew that. But what if we could get what if we could get men to bond with each other and marry each other so that they wouldn't have any more children? What if we could tell them that homosexual promiscuity can lead to a dreadful disease? What if we can tell them that male homosexuality can lead to a plague? A plague that would occur, we found, in the 80s. And so they'd be really better off in a one-to-one monogamous relationship. And then we could make it more desirable for them by calling it marriage and normalizing it and legislating for it. And we'll have lots of nice, happy couples living together and loving each other. And hey, presto, no children, no population growth. Now, you'll probably say to yourself, you're crazy. 
That's far-fetched. It's not. Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood in America and who was a racist um, and who was a eugenicist and who founded that evil organization believed exactly this. Here's a quote from Brendan O'Neill. Now I'm quoting Brendan O'Neill in this simply because Brendan O'Neill would not share any views of me. He's not by any means a right-wing commentator. But Brendan O'Neill quotes from an op-ed piece in an American magazine. And here's what it says. Given the social hardships of our era, the benefits of homosexual marriage could be immeasurable. Even America, through its population, though its population pales in comparison to that of other nations, is considered overpopulated because the amount of energy each of its citizens expands in a lifetime is enormous. You see, they're expanding energy, expanding energy. You know what I mean? That's about not killing the planet. Obviously, go back to the quote for a moment, Obviously, homosexuals cannot, within the confines of a monogamous relationship, conceive offspring. So legislating gay marriage would indirectly limit population growth. That was going around in America and here. Did you ever think that the promotion of homosexuality is all about saving the planet. Because that's what the Malthusians think. You want to reduce the population, promote homosexual marriage, is the way that they think. What about the abortion industry? Why are Western nations ruthlessly pushing for abortion? Because people want to have sexual relationships without consequences. So the abortionists push for their so-called health care, which is basically murdering babies in the womb, controlling population. I was abortion legalized in Northern Ireland. It was forced upon us by the Westminster government. And what about the climate change lobby? We've already seen that language being used uh, in the underlying reasons for the promotion of homosexuality. But the climate change lobby, the central thesis of that lobby, is that we human beings are draining the Earth's resources. We're a danger to the animal world. We have stripped the Earth. We have polluted it with our industrialization. So we must stop heating our homes with oil. You won't be able to afford that very long. We must stop driving our cars. We're going to have to cut that down as the price goes up. We must stop eating meat because, believe it or not, the cows in the fields out there are killing the earth. And you know how they're doing it. They're expelling methane gas and their flatulence. They're damaging the ozone layer and we'll all burn or we'll freeze to death or something. And we must all aim for our net zero carbon emissions by 2030. In an article in the online magazine Spiked 
Again, Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor of that particular organ. Lists five examples of modern Malthusians. I, I stress again, I'm only quoting this man because he and I would not be um, philosophical uh, friends. Um, he talks about unreconstructed Malthusians, posh people who have rather outdated views on other races. You know, the kind of person who says, oh, these jolly foreigners ought to stop breeding, that kind of person. That's the traditional unreconstructed Malthusian thinking. Celebrity Malthusians. A lot of these celebrities are not overly bright, but you'll see them at their little award ceremonies. People who do voiceovers on nature programs. Have you seen one of those? Uh, a man, maybe that's quite up in his 90s, who tells you perhaps that the world was a wonderful place until a terrible plague came along, um, a cancer on the earth, and that cancer is you, human beings. David Attenborough. Cancer on the planet. Celebrity Malthusians. Psycho Malthusians. There is somewhere in the world a church of euthanasia and a voluntary extinction movement. And so O'Neill quotes psychologist Sue Blackmore, who said on the super respectable BBC Radio 3 show Night Waves, listen, quote, for the planet's sake, I hope we have bird flu or some other thing that will reduce the population because otherwise we're doomed. Brendan O'Neill suggests she maybe we should go first. Feminist Malthusians. Feminism used to be about women's rights, and now it's all about abortion. What they call health care, but they have that now. There's nothing left for them to fight for, except that if we can abort more babies, then we'll have less children breathing in precious oxygen, and worse out... We're still breathing out carbon dioxide. Abortion isn't just, by the way, when you're thinking about it, abortion isn't just to these people about getting girls out of trouble that they've got themselves into. Abortion's actually about saving the planet. Less human beings. That's why they're pushing it. That's why we had to have it here. We were going against the trend. One American feminist says, and listen to this, for crassness. To understand that a tiny embryo must sometimes be sacrificed for the greater good of the human species is the moral high ground that we stand on today. To sacrifice the planet, to sacrifice the baby, or the planet gets it. How crass is that? Feminists, green Malthusians, like other followers of Malthus, they believe in the central tenets of what has become the major religion in this day and age, because every single world view and philosophy outside of evangelical Christianity is affected by this population control 
philosophy. The green Malthusians simply believe that there are too many big fat Westerners, people like me, eating too many hamburgers, driving around in too many petrol-guzzling cars, using up the Earth's resources, you need curbed. Wrecking, they say, the wrecking of Earth's life support systems. To be fair, I suppose uh, Brendan O'Neill's list of Malthusian categories has been criticised online, but at least it gives you an idea of who the modern followers of this awful cult are. You can put the names to the categories. Right, let's do something more constructive. We've looked at the historical figure of who started all this. If it hadn't been him, it would be someone else. And we looked at some ways in which this Malthusianism is affecting the philosophies of this world, all of the philosophies of this world. I want to see for a moment or two the biblical answer. That will be more constructive. We've looked at the population control movement the Malthusian cult influencing what's happening in the world today. There is a biblical worldview. And like everything concerning God's created world, the answers lie in Genesis. I want you to see just some very simple things, four simple things. The first thing that we have to understand when we encounter what's happening in this world today is that we, humanity, has a special status in this world. We are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Contrary to what Mr. Attenborough might think, we are not a plague on the planet. We're not a cancer eating to the planet's resources. You and I, human beings, are God's special creation. We are the very pinnacle of his creation. John Piper notes that we are unique among creation. We are the final creation. Only man is stated to be in the image of God. Only humanity is given dominion over all the earth. We are prior to, prior to the creation of man alone. There was divine counsel and only man is explicitly stated as being created male and female. As the population of the earth reaches eight billion people. I want to say to you this evening that every single one of those eight billion people are endued with that special status. Here's something to think about. We haven't reached that number yet. But when we do, baby number eight billion, when he or she is born, will not be a burden on this earth. He or she will be an individual soul, 
a soul that will leave this world and will dwell somewhere in eternity. A soul that has been created with the capacity and the purpose to have fellowship with God and to bring glory to God in their individual life. Every life matters. Every baby matters. After all, to God, every single sparrow matters. And baby number eight billion will be no less valued to his creator than baby number one. Part of our special God's given status is that when he created us, he created us with the ability to think. That's what makes us different from the animal kingdom. Like our creator, we have a unique creative ability that other creative beings do not have. When Malthus was writing his famous book on population back in the 1800s, he looked at potatoes and he counted the number of sacks of potatoes that the world could produce or some other food. And he counted the number of people that were populating the earth and he did his sums and he said the potatoes are going to run out but what he didn't take into effect that within a very few short years the God-given ingenuity that was given to mankind at creation would invent pesticides and fertilizers and crops would increase And tractors would replace horses. And productivity would increase. And the industrial revolution would come. And it would bring work to hundreds of thousands of people. And mouths would be fed. Simply because of the God-given intelligence that we have. That nothing else in this creation has. The thinking capacity that God gave to his special creation. Biblical answer is that humanity has a status that nothing else in this world has been endued with. The second biblical answer is that far from depopulating the earth, we are to populate the earth. What does the Bible say about population control? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. In fact, the very opposite is the case. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Genesis 9 and 7, post-flood. And you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. We're told that we are to populate the earth and not to depopulate it. And can't you hear the Malthusian cult screaming? You know, back in the 70s, a friend of ours got married and he felt he needed some help was his new married state, how to be a good husband and a prospective father. So, of course, he went along to his local Christian bookshop and he asked for some help. And they recommended to him a cassette tape by an American speaker. 
a man called Boa Baptist, a man called Tony Campolo. And he took it home and he listened to it. Um, I mean, after all, his associations were somewhat dubious, but my friend was a Baptist and so was Tony Campolo, so that's okay. And he was speaking on the Christian family. And after he had listened to it, my friend thought it was so good that he would give it to me. He was really impressed. He must have thought I needed some help with planning my family as well, even though I already had two children. In it, Campolo mentions this verse from Genesis 1 and 28. And he said to the people, he was preaching to a crowd at a conference, and he said it was God's command to populate the world given in the context of an empty world. He says that doesn't apply today, for wait for it, it's the way he spoke, the world has been populated. And all the people in the conference began to cheer. Campolo preaching Malthusianism and Christians cheering it as good advice for families. So let's see there. Is the word populated? Overpopulated. Glenn Staunton of Focus on the Family um, and one or two other Christian websites address this issue. One website states that at the time of writing, and this was a few years back, there are approximately 7.1 billion people in the world. That's a lot of people. But to put that number in perspective, there are about 7.5 trillion square feet of land in the state of Texas, in the state, in the United States alone. And Glenn Staunton makes this point. This means that theoretically every person in this world could fit into the state of Texas. And each person would still have 1,056 square foot of living space. That's 4,224 square feet for a family of four. Plenty of room for everybody. And put everybody in the entire world into the state of Texas. And some population experts, and again I'm talking about Glenn Staunton here and others, are actually claiming that we're not producing enough children. Every 80-year-old person, according to statistics, needs seven people of working age to provide enough fiscal resource to enable him or her to live in relative comfort. That's enough workers to pay taxes to support an 80-year-old person's medical needs and pension and so on. Now, at present rates of population decline, and the population is declining, that will be impossible. That's what China discovered. That's why they had to reverse their one-child-only policy. My point is that God's word stands forever. No matter what old liberal people like Campolo might say, and we find out shortly after that that he had some other strange associations and ideas. My point is that God is always right. He's always right. Genesis is not frozen somewhere in the past. We are to go out and populate the world. In fact, I would suggest to you that the psalmist has a far better view of it than Campolo had. 
For the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27 that children are an heritage of the Lord, that the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So the first biblical answer to this underlying philosophy that's driving everything in our world is that humanity has a special status. The second is that we are not to depopulate the earth. We are actually to populate it. It's a biblical command. The third, and I put it rather whimsically, is that the world is our oyster. God created this world and everything in it for us, for you and me, for humanity, to feed us Genesis 1 and verse 29 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, and the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to, and to every beast of the, of the earth, and to every fowl of the earth, and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. You see, the world is for us. We draw from it. The point of this world is to feed all of mankind. And I tell you, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of capacity. There's plenty of resources. There's plenty of people who are clever enough to make the best of it. We are to feed upon the resources of this world and not just the plant resources. For those of you who are vegetarians, Genesis 9 and 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. Now we draw for now. To counterbalance that, we care for it. There's a responsibility placed upon us. We're not given the world to plunder it or to rape its resources for personal greed, like many of the multinational companies do. Last year in 2021, when we were struggling with those COVID restrictions and enduring rising costs of living and higher taxes and prospects, Did you know that the giant Shell Oil Company announced that its profits had soared? Reuters, London, February the 3rd, 2022. I quote, Shell again boosted its dividend and share repurchases on Thursday after fourth quarter profits hit their highest in eight years, fueled by higher oil and gas prices and strong gas trading performance. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. Man's responsibility is to farm the earth sensibly, with care and responsibility. Genesis 2 and 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. But won't the food run out? No, because God is our provider. The Lord who created this world is sustaining it. Second Corinthians 9 and 10. He that ministereth seed to the sower 
both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. You see, it is God who makes the grass grow. And this world will yield enough food for all eight billion of us. For as long as it pleases the Lord, until such times as is his will that it should come to an end. Genesis 8 and 22. Here's the promise. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And you'll often hear the climate change lobbyists giving dire warnings about the future. What's going to happen to the planet if we don't cut our carbon emissions and use less fossil fuels and stop eating meat? And Greta Thunberg, the doom goblin herself, wrote, You lied to us. You gave us false hope. You told us the future was something to look forward to. And the saddest thing is that most children are not even aware of the fate that awaits us. We will not understand it until it's too late. And yet you are the lucky ones. Those who will be affected by the the hardest are already suffering the consequences, but their voices are not heard. What does she know? She should be in her school. The Lord Jesus Christ, who made this world and who holds it in his hands, told us not to worry about the food supply. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you shall eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry about it. Take no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We have just to feed the population. Why are they listening to this girl? Well, we know that there's forces behind her. She didn't get where she is accidentally. Look, you've listened really well, and I've gone on too long. I've one single point to make. What is the problem with population? You do know the answer to that, don't you? The problem is sin. And again, the answer is Genesis. Because Adam, they're given free will by God, determined to disobey God. It was that sin. It was that rebellion against his creator that brought plague and sickness and natural disaster into this world and the greed and the wickedness of mankind that we see demonstrated in that statement of profit by Shell Oil and BP and others is the result of sin. It's sin that needs dealt with. And because of that major problem, because of sin, God gave his own sinless son so that the rebellion between God and man could be brought to an end. It is salvation in Christ that this world needs, not population control. And because sin is the problem, one day Jesus will return to judge the world and to gather his people out of this world and judge those who are still in rebellion against God. That's why it grieves me so much. When I hear clergymen, 
like the Archbishop of Canterbury, with his woke credentials, talking about population control and climate change, and all these woke ideologies. Because what this world needs isn't Malthusianism. And he's a Malthusian. What this world needs is Christ. Because sin is the problem. And on the day when Jesus returns, there will be a total destruction of this sin-stricken world. And there will be a new earth and a new heaven. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Wonderful thing, that when this world ends, as it surely will, for those of us who know and love the Lord, There will be a new heaven and a new earth.